Our apologies, but the first few minutes of this theological equipping class were not recorded. The audio will begin about midway through Jared's opening prayer. Uh, see rightly in this world, but most of all, Lord, that uh, your salvation, what we're talking about this semester, that your salvation would be that much more wonderful to us. Uh, that we wouldn't just see ourselves as a little bit sinful and therefore Jesus needs to just be a little bit of our Savior, but rather we are infinitely sinful. We are wicked to the core. That's, that's our, by nature, children of wrath, and we need, we, we can only be saved by an infinitely gracious Savior, a love that goes beyond all of our understanding, and that's what we have in the gospel. And so I pray that as we look at sin, you would open our eyes, not just to the truth of our sin and of the sin of the world, but you would open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that in his wonderful name. Amen. Okay, so this semester we've been walking through uh, what's called soteriology, the study of salvation. We've titled this semester Salvation, Life in the Sun. We spent a lot of time talking about how we are not after just understanding abstract truth. That, that is good in and of itself, but if that's where we stop, we miss the riches, the untold riches of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we want to see this truth connected to the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we've titled it Salvation, Life in the Sons. We started off a couple weeks ago with a lesson on the Trinity, our God of salvation, and just unpack, unpack that who our God is in his very self, our eternal Father who's been eternally pouring out his love on his Son by the fellowship of the Spirit. That's who our God is even before he said, let there be light. He creates out of an overflow of that love, and our salvation is being brought into fellowship, brought into that loving relationship where, as Jesus says, in the same way, even as the Father has eternally loved his Son, he loves us. That's what the Spirit is drawing us into. So we saw that kind of setting the stage. That's who our God is. Last week, Lee looked at election, the idea that uh, those who choose God were chosen by God. Before he said, let there be light, this is a doctrine that often gets a bad rap or is often misunderstood or makes God cold or unfair in our minds. But the reality of the scriptures points to a loving God and how it should be actually something that warms our very souls to know that the Lord chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. And today, we're going to look at sin. Okay, so we looked at who God is, his election of us. We're going to look at sin before we actually launch into the rest of the semester covering salvation. So before looking ahead at your notes, which I'm sure you've already scanned a little bit, let me just ask, why in a semester about salvation do we need to talk about sin? Why would we do it? it seems like a downer. Can't we just talk about Justification, right? All the, all the good things. It's what makes salvation necessary, yes. Great. Anything else? Something we all do, yeah? Gives us some self-understanding, yeah? Anything else? What are we being saved from? Exactly right, yeah? Something else? Someone else? Yeah, salvation can be, or uh, sin can be a trap. You mean like morbid introspection, that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so I, have a, uh, there's, I think those are all really good ideas. I've got a couple things in your notes. I think number one, uh, and, and this is by no means exhaustive, one reason why it's very important for us to look at sin, even in the context of our salvation, is one, it helps you just see the world rightly. You will not operate as a human being correctly in a fallen world if you do not have a good understanding of sin, of that fallen world, of the people in that fallen world. And so everybody in our world, Christian or not, has to wrestle with the question of why is our world so bad? Why does wickedness seem so prevalent? And there's tons of different answers that we've come, across, uh, come up with throughout history. Today, some, some typical answers you'll hear is education, you know, just not properly educated or educated in the wrong way. That's why the world is so bad. If we just fixed education, that would fix society or maybe just parenting. Oh, they had a bad upbringing, so that's why they're bad. Or, you know, our, our day talks about maybe there's, they've, if people act badly because they've been under oppressive regimes, uh, and therefore that's why they act badly, or maybe just it's, it's different cultures. But the problem with all those things is if it's a bad upbringing, then who was it that gave, what, what is it that made the parents bad? Well, they must have had a bad upbringing. Okay, well, who was it that made the grandparents bad? And you got to keep going until you get back to Adam, and then you get, just get back to the garden, what we're going to talk about today, right? You get the biblical answer. If it's just upbringing, well, that, that kind of never ends. Okay, so if it's education, one question, that, that, was a, that was a big answer of our society, and then in the 1930s and 40s, that sort of idea of it's just an education problem was obliterated by Nazi Germany. Uh, what was considered, before the, the, the death camps were discovered, high society, uh, the most educated culture in the world, right? The, the Germans in the 30s and 40s, and then people who began to say education is the problem had no answer for why uh, the Nazis' unthinkably wicked behavior was wrong, because they were very highly educated. So now, all of a sudden, the reason for that sin was taken away. So you, so you see, we, we come up with all these answers, and they all seem to not have any sort of substance, whereas the scriptures would say, the world is wicked because it's populated with sinners. There's a, there's a simple, clear Genesis 3 reason why the world today is just as wicked as Genesis 6, when God looks out and he sees man's intention is evil always. Our world is wicked because it's populated with sinners. And if we don't see that, we're just not going to operate clearly. We're going to chase rabbit trails that, that aren't there. The second thing I have there is, especially for us in the church, it helps us see the mission of the church, the primary mission of the church, rightly. Uh, if the problem is the wicked heart of man, the mission of the church ought to be, the solution to that problem ought to be preaching the gospel that frees man from that wickedness. You see that? So social justice, I know now post-2020, post-really uh, the fundamentalist liberalism controversy is just kind of a bad word. Uh, justice used to be something very much that the church did, but not under the impression that trying to serve the poor among you would somehow bring the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so while, while justice ought not to be neglected by the church... We, we're a little bit sinful, and maybe some encouragement would help along the way, then let's just roll out as many justice projects as we, as we can, and we might actually transform the city. But if someone is deeply, totally depraved and needs an 
supernatural gospel to free them from their own slavery to sin, we need to begin evangelizing primarily. We have a message as our primary means of actually affecting the broken world that we're in. So it helps us see the mission of the church rightly. And then thirdly, what many of you said, I think most importantly, at least for our purposes here in this semester, why talk about sin in a semester of salvation? Seeing the depths of your own sin, not just the generic sin of the world, your sin, seeing the chasm of your wickedness, seeing how deep your unrighteousness actually goes, ironically, shines light on the beauty of the gospel. There's a scene in Luke 7 where Jesus is eating with actually high-class people, and a woman comes in, and she's just called a sinner, maybe a prostitute. She's just a sinful woman. She's known in the town as being gross, as being sinful, as being wicked, and she comes to Jesus, and Jesus forgives her, and everyone around him is just kind of disgusted. How could he? He doesn't even know, because he doesn't know what this woman's been into. How could he do this? And Jesus says, tells a parable of someone who's forgiven a little debt. Will he, will he be grateful? Yeah. What about someone who's forgiven an infinite debt? Will they be grateful? Yes, they'll actually be more grateful. And Jesus says this in Luke 7, Therefore I tell you, her sin, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. If you are under the impression you are generally better than most people, because you can look at death row and be like, I have not done that. Or you can watch the news and you can say, I'm not that dumb. And, and that's just kind of how you operate in the world. Uh, you're someone who, sure, you're not perfect. No one would ever say that. We're not ridiculous, but I'm not that bad. If that's how you operate, you need a very little savior you need someone to just kind of help you over the line because you're doing 80% of it. You're doing pretty good. But if you have 0%, if your good works are nothing but filthy rags, your best attempts are a laughingstock, then you need someone to do the 100%. You need a big, strong savior. If you're pretty good, you will worship a weak God because he just needs to save you this much. But if you are totally depraved, you need a big Savior. And the Scriptures would tell you, you have a big Savior. You see that? So before we launch into lesson after lesson after lesson of that salvation, we need to see the depths here first. Lest we come under the impression and rob God of glory he is deserving of. And rob you of joy you're meant to have in Jesus who did rescue you from these depths. There's just this weird impulse we have, even when ministering to other people, to try to just minimize sin because it seems kind. And when we do that, we minimize, ironically, salvation. We minimize the gospel. Two quotes here. J.C. Ryle, who's a 19th century bishop uh, in Liverpool, wrote a bunch of books that are still making the rounds today, Thoughts for Young Men, Holiness, things like that. This is at the beginning of Holiness. He said, he that wishes to attain a right view about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would to build high. A mistake here is most mischievous. Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of 
all-saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as justification, which we'll talk about, conversion, which we'll talk about, sanctification, which we'll talk about, are words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. The first thing, therefore, that God does when he makes anyone a new creature in Christ is to send light into his heart and show him that he is a guilty sinner. Or Sinclair Ferguson says it in a different way. Only as we begin to appreciate what we were before we became Christians or what we would be naturally if we were not Christians, we do, or do we begin to sense something of the immense grandeur of being new creatures in Christ. You've been a Christian as long as you can remember. Still taking a look at who we are apart from God ought to open a door to immense grandeur of the gospel. Okay, so that's what we're going to attempt to do today. So we'll look at the story of sin, we'll look at inherited sin, we'll look at the nature of sin, that we're totally depraved, and then we'll kind of make two comments on what about sinning as Christians, sinning as saints, what happens when believers sin, and then our Savior and sin. We'll preview, we'll look forward to the rest of the semester. So let's look forward, or first at the story of sin. Okay, so Genesis one and two, uh, you guys know, is, is the story of creation. The Lord creates everything, kind of macro creation in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 zooms in to the garden, and we see God scoop up dirt and make Adam and breathe life into him, put Adam to sleep, take a rib, make Eve, bring them together to work and keep the garden to spread God's beauty and glory throughout this creation as those made in his image, uniquely made in his image to go and represent him everywhere that they go, and the best part there, with God in the garden in the cool of the day. They have fellowship with God. Athanasius, the early church father, says, what profit would there be for those who were made, you and me, creatures, if they did not know their own maker? What would be the point of creation if we didn't get to know, if we didn't get to have fellowship with our maker? That's how we were made. That's how the story starts. And then we all know in Genesis 3, the story comes to a screeching halt as we see man Rebel. So I won't read. I have Genesis 3 there for you. I'll just comment on it. I won't read it. But we see Adam and Eve tempted, uh, or Eve in particular, tempted by the serpent. She sees this fruit that they're commanded. Don't eat of it. Trust God. Don't eat of that fruit. Adam or uh, Eve sees it. It delights her eyes. It draws her in. She takes a bite. She gives it to Adam, who's passively standing there. He takes a bite as well. What are they doing in that moment? We talked about this uh, in, in my sermon last week. They're rejecting not just God's law. Fundamentally, what are they doing? They're rejecting God. They're not just saying, here's a rule, I want to break it. Rather, God is the one who said, I've made you for myself. I will tell you what is good and what is evil. You be my people, I will be your God. You trust me, you love me, you follow my ways. You trust that I only have your good in my heart. And when they see that fruit and they hear the temptation, they begin to think, I don't think he's telling the truth. I actually think his character might be a bit off because this serpent is telling me there's something great for me to have that he's actually denying me. I will be like God. That's why God actually doesn't want it. And so they begin to twist his motives and they take a bite of the fruit fundamentally to say, actually, I will be the one, God, who will determine right from wrong, good and evil. 
I'll be the one who has the knowledge and the say-so of what I will do and what I won't do. They are rejecting God as king. They're rejecting God as their life. They're rejecting God as their sweet fellowship. That's the essence of sin. They're rejecting God. And so Genesis 3 points to all these consequences that are just immediately poured out as Adam and Eve instantly see the folly of their ways. There's no honeymoon period with sin. The second the food is in their throat, they realize they're naked. And they see that they've been lied to. Okay, So they reject God. Augustine says this about the essence of sin. By aiming at more, this idea of being God, man is diminished. And when he elects to be self-sufficient and defects from the one who is really sufficient for him. This then is the original sin. Man regards himself as own light and turns away from the light, which would make him, which would make man himself a light if he would but set his heart on it. Adam and Eve believed, I can do it my way. This will bring me great happiness. And Augustine's saying, ironically, in their rejection of the only one who actually can bring them happiness, actually can bring them satisfaction, they deteriorate. Instead of happiness, there's great shame. So they do this. There's consequences that are poured out. These are some of the consequences we see in Genesis 3. Number one, first and foremost, is this broken fellowship with God. This God they were made for. This God that they were made to be totally vulnerable before. This God they were made to walk with in the garden. They now have uh, broken fellowship with him. They hide from him. They're in shame. Uh, they aren't honest with him. They blame, they blame other people for their sin. They're afraid of God rather than him being the most warming, welcoming presence imaginable. They're fleeing from him. They're running away as fast as they can. And then ultimately they get sent out of the garden. Now, we talked about this in our lesson on the Trinity. This is primary. This is the primary consequence of sin. And we need to see it that way. We need to see this broken fellowship as the primary consequence of sin because, as we'll see throughout this semester, where you start, we talked about this with the Trinity, where you start will determine everything else, okay? So the problem of sin, the primary problem of sin will determine the solution or will determine what salvation is. Okay, so if, let me just ask, if our primary problem is we are under God's wrath, what is the solution to that? Or what, what, does, what is salvation ultimately? If wrath is our ultimate problem, what is salvation? Escaping wrath. Forgiveness. That wrath somehow being turned away from us, right? Which is a biblical concept. I'm not saying that's a biblical concept, but I'm saying that's not the primary idea of what's happening with sin. If wrath is the primary problem, escaping wrath is the primary, pro or primary solution, salvation is forgiveness, then what do you do with adoption? What do you do with infinite fellowship with God in the heavenly places? Cool, that's a nice add-on, but we've already gotten the main thing, which is getting out of trouble, right? That's often what we do. Uh, we think of forgiveness, and then we don't really know what to do with all the other stuff because we're not going to hell, right? Now, if broken fellowship is the primary problem, what's the solution? What's salvation? Restoring that relationship, restoring that fellowship. And notice, you have beautiful forgiveness that leads to that restoration. Everything kind of falls into place, okay? So this is important. 
Wrath, absolutely, we're gonna get to that on the list. Many other consequences, absolutely, we're gonna get to that on the list. But where you start, what is primary in your mind will determine what is ultimately your view of salvation. If it's wrath, you'll be really grateful for forgiveness, but you won't really know what to do with a relationship with God other than thanks for not sending me to hell forever. You won't know what to do with him being near you as your comforter, as your source of life, as your father, right? That'll just be kind of a cold state. You see that, okay? So broken fellowship is the first thing we see. Don Fairburn says this, this is perhaps the greatest tragedy of sin. God creates us in a condition of glorious fellowship with him, which reflects the love that he has within himself, within the Trinity. But not only does our sin make this relationship impossible, we don't even want it. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So that's the first consequence. We, we lose our fellowship with God that we were made for. Secondly, as a result of that, we have a new sinful nature. We're going to have a whole section on this, a totally depraved nature. We are now, by nature, sinners. By nature, sinners. We do not, uh, we're, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That is who we are to the core as those who have rebelled against a holy God. Again, we'll talk about this more in a second. Number three, we see in the garden there's spiritual death. So Adam and Eve were promised death if you eat this fruit, uh, and they, they don't die physically instantly. Notice that. They keep living, which is an act of mercy from God. But there is this spiritual death that they have, even as they continue to live physically. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You who have been living since you were born, you were dead. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about your, this sort of spiritual death that we have, that, that idea when they realize that they're naked and there's shame instantly, that's that sort of spiritual death. Or Colossians 2, Paul says something similar. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Okay, so though there is physical life for sinners, we are spiritually dead. Those apart from Christ are spiritually dead, though alive. So this is the natural condition, if you want to say, post-Genesis 3 natural condition of men. Or you, if you want to say it another way, just spiritual death is a way of referring to a broken relationship with God. Your, your life and your relationship with God was meant to be the, the source of our spiritual life. What did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say I have life. He says I am the life. Communion with me, abiding in me, is life. And when you sever that because you rebel against him, there is spiritual death. Number four, what we see is physical death. So Adam will eventually die, take several centuries, which can you imagine that? How, how miserable it'd be to li live to like 900, which I always wonder like at 80, are they us at 80? Or are they, are they us 80 at 800? So they're like ripped at 200, their 20s at 200. Anyway, uh, scriptures don't tell us. Uh, so Adam does die. I've got the, the scriptures there for you. But then also we see that all humanity dies. Besides Enoch and Elijah, <laughs> all humanity has died. Romans 5, physical death. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through man, one man and death, physical death, through sin, so death separated all men, because, uh, so death spared or spread to all men because all sin, excuse me. Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. All of our society's efforts, it seems like, 
goes to trying to delay this or reverse this, and we've never been successful. All the face cream we want to hide the death that's slowly approaching, all the operations, all the pills, whatever we want, all the, all the doctor's visits, we cannot prevent this Genesis 3 reality. We will physically die. Number five, consequence, wrath or eternal death, if there's no redemption. Right, Ephesians 2, again, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We, we've talked about this before. One sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite punishment. And if we who are sinners, if God is not to intervene, if a sinner dies physically, there is an eternal death or what we often call hell, this, this idea of God's wrath being poured out on us consciously for all eternity, wrath. Number six, broken relationship with other people. I'll kind of I'll move through these next couple ones quickly. Uh, we just see this Adam and Eve, uh, uh, this, this leader and helpmate perfectly fit for him. Now they're blaming each other. They're fighting. Part of the curse is uh, Eve's desire will be contrary to her husband and he will rule over her oppressively. So this, this beautiful shalom we see in the relationships is broken. We see this in Genesis 4 when Cain kills Abel. It's not just they're fighting, they're actually killing one another. But now, because we have a sinful nature, we are sinners, we treat others sinfully. We are greedy because we care about ourselves, not others. We are selfish because we care about ourselves, not others. We use and abuse people because we care about ourselves, not others. There's a brokenness there. And then there's, number seven, a broken relationship with the natural world. Uh, Adam and Eve were meant to work the garden and keep it, be fruitful and multiply, and both those things are cursed. Now, the, the being fruitful and multiplying part, childbirth, is painful. There's pain introduced into it. And the tilling the garden is now going to produce thorns and thistles. That's painful. Remember, the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread, God says to Adam. So there's this broken relationship with the natural world. And then number eight, somewhat confusing but worth mentioning, the image of God that men and women are created is distorted, is distorted. So the kind of crescendo of Genesis 1, as God's creating everything that there is, is let us make man in our image. And he creates man and woman in the image of God. And Genesis 3 does not obliterate that. Later in Genesis, in Genesis 9, man is still called the image of God. In fact, that's why God says, don't kill another human, because they're made in the image of God. But there's been a, a significant distortion where we no longer represent God. Our lives no longer represent God in the way that they were meant to in the garden. Okay, so now we need the image of God renewed in us. As we go out into the world, we don't represent a holy, perfect, wonderful God. We represent something quite different. Francis Schaeffer calls us a glorious ruin, Still made in the image of God, which is why we should care about every human being in the world, made in the image of God, Christian or not, but a glorious ruin, this sort of marred by the fall. So those are all the consequences, or those are many of the consequences of sin that are just a result of Adam and Eve ultimately rejecting the God they were made for, ultimately rejecting the only thing that could satisfy them. And perhaps another consequence is this next section, I guess you could call this a consequence, this idea that this unfortunately doesn't stay with Adam and Eve, but rather is inherited by all who come from Adam and Eve, which is everybody in this room, which is this inherited sin is often called the doctrine of original sin. Okay, since all are born of Adam 
And Adam is sinful. Adam is a sinner by his nature. We are all born sinners. We're all born into sin. Okay? A couple passages here. Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many were made righteous. Or Psalm 51, where David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay? So this is the idea of we're, we are inheriting sin from our father, Adam. As sinners, it's being passed down. We're inheriting corruption. We're inheriting guilty. Or to say it another way, if you want to, we're, we're just born separated from God. We're born in exile, as we talked about over Christmas. All that Adam and Eve accomplished for us, we get. And they, they accomplished for us this sort of death, this inherited sin. Okay, so the, the typical example from any parent, of which I am one, is just look at a kid. I have never met a parent, maybe there are some out there, who has to teach a kid to be bad. I've never met that parent. Hey, take this fork, and you see that, that thing in the wall that with electricity coming through it? Jam that in there as hard as you can, and, and right, bad things will happen. Or take this, uh, this heavy object and see your brother over there? I want you to swing it as hard as you can at his face, right? No parents ever had to do that because kids do it anyway. <laughs> There's something in them, sin, that they're born with. And when a toy is mine, it's mine, and anybody that gets in my way, whether I can crawl or walk or just scream, it's mine. And I will do whatever it takes to keep it for me, right? Sometimes we like to romanticize, like, they're just so innocent, and they just come into this world, and then it fades away. No, no, no. They're gaining physical abilities to carry out what's already in their heart, which is sin. We love our sweet little babies, right? Those are sweet little sinners, Okay. Sometimes I, I have this weird like moments in, in discipline where I just forget all my theology. I'm like, why are you doing this to the kid? And they say, because I'm totally depraved, Dad. They don't say that, but I remember that, right? It's like, yeah, of course. Of course. They're just doing what is their nature that they've inherited from Adam, okay? So this has spread from Adam to all of humanity, okay? All of humanity. The scriptures describe all humanity is having this sin nature, okay? So there's this kind of universality of sin. Genesis 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thought and his heart was only evil continually, which is a very thorough way to say that. Every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 14, the Lord looked down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, and they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Not even one. Paul will pick that up word for word in Romans 3. Romans 3, 23. For all, 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 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so this is the idea of, of original sin. We've inherited this. This is something that has gone through all of us because our nature has been change. We're born with this sinful nature, okay? You see that flowing from Adam to all of us, okay? So let's actually look at kind of the main topic for this morning, which is this nature of sinners, that we are totally depraved. That's the, the theological term you'll hear. Uh, total depravity that comes from this loss of communion with 
God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, by this sin, they, Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. So they shared in this relationship with God and they fall from that. And so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in the parts and faculties of the soul and body. Okay, so when I say total depravity, what pops into your mind? You can say what you think or what you've heard and you think distortions are. Total depravity, what, what do you think? Or you might just say, I've never heard that term. Incapable of any good, yeah? Incapable of any bad? Flipping it, okay. In need? That's great, yeah. Like election, there's just a lot of these things that will be either misunderstood or there's just several other positions that have been held throughout church history because we don't like one, so we have another one, okay? So total depravity... I have two primary things there. Again, this, this isn't meant to be totally exhaustive, but two primary things. Uh, first of all, total depravity, just to make it as clear as possible, is the idea that sin extends to our entire being. Notice that Westminster Confession of Faith said our, our soul and body. That's their way of saying all of you. Or to say it another way, there's no part of you that's not corrupted by sin. Sin has touched everything that is you and everything that is me. That's the totally part. Okay, so uh, one big misunderstanding is uh, that word totally. It doesn't mean we're utterly depraved. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. See the difference there? So not saying everybody who's totally depraved equals they're Hitler, right? You're not as bad as you could be, but what it means is every part of you is in some way corrupted by sin or is it, I guess, a positive way. There's no part of you that is untouched by sin, Okay, so for example, even your virtuous acts can still be sinful. So you can obey as a sinner by nature. You can obey the command, thou shall not murder, right? Not every, some people will live and die not murdering somebody, which is a positive thing, right? We're pro not murder, right? They've, they've obeyed that commandment, but what's the motivation for a sinner, I don't want to go to jail, uh, I, I, I don't like blood, or I just, there'll be a lot of, uh, I just, uh, I think that'd be bad, maybe there'll be repercussions for me. There's always some sort of motivation that isn't, I want to glorify God with my mind and body and soul. I want to love him with all that is in me, I want to do all that is for him, and he said, thou shalt not murder so, so to glorify him and to honor him, I'm going to do it. That's, that's not our motivation. So you see that. You can, you can even obey. I mean, take the rich young ruler, comes to Jesus. Jesus says, have you done all these commands? He says, yes, from birth, I've done all these commands. And Jesus says, great, sell everything and follow me. One thing he's missing, total love for God. And what happens? He leaves sad. Even in his obedience, there's roots of sinfulness because there's selfish motivation. You see that. There's even times we'll see in the prophets where God says to, the, to Israel, stop with your sacrifices. Stop with your songs because I know you're just doing this wickedly. I know you're oppressing people in the streets. You're doing all the right ordinances and services, but your hearts are far from me. Right? I'm closing my ears when you sing worship songs. So even in your obedience, they're still touched by sin. Or Romans 14 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So you see that? You see that? There's not a way, or there, you can still obey 
But again, at the heart, sin is a rejection from God. So anything not done totally for his glory, right, is in a way sinful, okay? So sin extends to our entire being. Even our virtuous acts extends to our actions. Genesis 6, again, our wills, which our will, that's a theological term, kind of the controlling center of you, your mind, if you will. Uh, So your will is corrupted by sin, Isaiah 30, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Uh, Our affections are affected by sin. Ephesians 2, I don't have it there in your notes, but Paul talks about uh, when we're by nature children of wrath, we're dead in our sins, carrying out the desires of the flesh. Your affections have been warped to desire the wrong thing. That's what sin is doing as Adam and Eve are staring at the fruit and they're beginning to see it's a delight to the eyes and it's good for food. They're beginning to desire this thing that is utter rejection, this idea of autonomy away from God. Our desires and our affections have been warped. Romans 1 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping Things so we, we worship the creating, created things rather than the creator. So you do what you want. The problem is what you want has been corrupted. Your desires, your affections have been twisted, okay? That's one of the extreme dangers of our day where expressive individualism is kind of the main, main thing. How, how do you find happiness? You just express all that you feel in here, all that you want, all that you desire. Just do it. And the scriptures would say that is maybe the worst thing you could do because everything you want and feel in here, everything you desire has been warped and twisted by sin. A famous story, I have have a couple quotes in there and your notes from Augustine. Augustine wrote uh, several hundred years ago his book, The Confessions, which is kind of a story of his life in the form of a prayer. If you want to read church history books, that's a great one to start on. Uh, But Augustine's life was one of a battle over the affections, his desires. He couldn't shake his lust. Even when he wanted to go after God, he couldn't. He says this, I still was held in the bonds of a woman's love. I did not persist in enjoyment of my God. Your beauty drew me to you. He's talking to God. But soon I was dragged away from you by my own weight, and in dismay, I plunged again into the things of the world, as though I had sensed the fragrance of the fair, but was not yet able to eat it. I began to search for a means by gaining the strength I needed to enjoy you, but I could not find this means until I embraced the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And then after his conversion, here's how he describes it. He gives a story of his conversion, then he says this, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You, God, you drove them from me. You who are the true and sovereign joy, you drove them from me, notice this, and took their place You who are sweeter than all pleasure, my Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. And a book like that has lasted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years because he's on to something. Sin has twisted our desires to run after fruitless joys, and that needs to be changed in order for us to be brought back. 
Okay, so that's a part of total depravity. It also affects our attitudes. It also affects our minds. We see that in Romans 8. It affects our hearts. We've got several verses there for you. Your heart is a way in the scriptures to refer to your entire kind of inner person, right? So it affects our hearts. It affects our whole self. Okay, so the whole person is affected by sin. You're not as bad as you could be by God's grace. John Newton would say it's even a mercy that we're not all Hitler, even though he's before Hitler, but I'm summarizing him. Uh, But you are, every part of you is touched by sin. Okay, there's no little righteous bit in you apart from God. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing, which this was mentioned uh, by someone as well, the second thing total depravity needs, uh, we need to see is we are wholly unable completely unable to save ourselves. We cannot merit our unrighteousness because everything is touched by sin and all of our good works are filthy rags before God. There is no way for us to climb out of this chasm. And let me just say to you, we don't want to. No sinner is like, oh, I'm a a sinner. How can I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength if the essence of being a sinner is rejecting him? We want him rejected. He has to overwhelm us to see last week. Okay, so fallen people cannot rescue themselves from their own depravity. Again, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people can't revive themselves. We need someone to come bring new life to us. Okay, so we're wholly unable to save ourselves. We do not do 80 and he makes the other 20. God does not help those who help themselves. We are dead and unable to do anything about it unless a very merciful God steps in. Unless we get the rest of Ephesians 2. But God who is rich in mercy but we're getting ahead of ourselves, okay? So you see that. We are nature, by our very nature, children of wrath. We're sinners. We're totally depraved. That is our nature, which means salvation has to have in it a nature change. For us to be saved, something needs to be done about our nature, okay? Eric Raymond, a pastor in Boston, says this. If we think of depravity in terms of what we do instead of who we are, then it is not surprising that the good news becomes good works. If the problem is our works, then we just need to reform our behavior. However, if the problem is fundamentally who we are, depraved sinners, then we need a new nature. We do not simply need reformation, we need regeneration. It is the difference between new habits and new life. Okay, so don't make that mistake. Don't think we just kind of have a disposition towards doing bad things, but with pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and working really hard, we can kind of, you know, get some righteousness going. And then God might be like, okay, he's trying hard. Maybe I'll make up the rest. Don't make that mistake. See the reality utterly depraved, unable to do anything about it. Okay, so that's where we are. (laughs) That's where we're going to end the lesson right now. So I'm going to make a couple comments looking forward. But you see that. Hopefully I've depressed you enough. You ought to be depressed. This is terrible. This ought to make us cry out. What must we do to be saved? How can we be saved? We need a savior. We need God to intervene. We can't do anything about it. That ought to be the reaction of seeing the depths of our depravity. And we have the rest of the semester that answers that question. 
starting next week, what we see in Genesis 3, in the midst of this curse, God already launches out a plan for bringing us back to him. Okay? So that's the depths of our depravity. We're totally depraved. That's our nature apart from God. Apart from God. And now let me just make a couple clarifying comments. One about believers who sin, and then we'll talk about Jesus and sin as we kind of launch into the rest of the semester over the coming weeks. Okay, so what about sinning saints? Okay, what about believers who sin? So everything, this is perhaps really helpful, everything I've just said up to this point is about those apart from Christ. Everything I've said up to this point is our nature apart from God, kicked out of the garden pre-Jesus coming to save us. Okay? So what happens when Jesus comes to save us, he fundamentally changes our nature. If we are by nature children of wrath, if we are by nature totally depraved, salvation involves a nature change. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. Notice Jesus doesn't go back on the mountain and bring down just another round of the Ten Commandments that maybe Israel will be able to follow this time. You must be Born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's something fundamental happening to your nature when you encounter the living God and Jesus Christ. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so that's you if you're a believer, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation, not patched up creation not washed over creation and presentable. Not one of those shows where you take like a nerd and give him a good haircut and put good clothes on. And you're like, wow, I didn't know how hot he was underneath all that nerdness. That's not what's happening. That wasn't in my notes. That was just for free. Um, that's not what's happening in salvation. He is a new creation. What does Paul continue to say? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul also says in Ephesians 4 to Christians, put off the what? Old self. That not you anymore because you've been crucified with Christ and raised with Christ. Put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, what Christ has brought you, the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So that sinner by nature, how does Paul address every single one of his letters that's written to a church? To the sinners in Ephesus? Saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Colossae. Why? Because Paul knows those who have been united to Christ have received a new nature. The old has gone, behold, the new has Come, Paul says in Romans 6, we know that our old self was, past tense, crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So you see that, it's so important. So important to see especially for this next point. When God looks at you, he doesn't see someone improving. He sees his perfect son because Christ has imputed his righteousness to you. He's given you his righteous robes. But you all know we still sin. So what gives? 
So we have, we've talked about this a lot with eschatology, that we're in this like now and not yet period where Christ has come and he's coming again. And so the kingdom is here, the gospel is going forth, but we're waiting for its ultimate consummation. That's, that's also true of us. There's a now, new nature part of you, and there's a not yet. You're becoming who you already are in God's sight, okay? So there's still this make war on the flesh. Paul still has to say, Put off the old self that keeps trying to wrap its wicked fingers around you. That's not who you are anymore. Notice Paul almost never says, hey, quit being silly sinners. He says, that's not you anymore. Remember, you died with Christ. Stop being who you aren't. There's a new self that was brought to you in Christ. New robes, new righteous rags. Stop instinctively putting on those filthy rags. You have righteous robes in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. So again, like Augustine, he's not sinless after his conversion, but now he has something that's taken the place of those fruitless joys, namely God. I have rewired affections, rewired desires. Okay, so there's still this war, but the very important thing for you to see is sinning as a saint doesn't redam you, doesn't unsave you. Okay, it's not repeating Genesis 3 over again as if God was like, I'm going to give you one do-over, one and then we'll see if you do better than Adam. Rather, he says, my son is going to do it for you. And you are going to be united to him where his life is your life. And so what does sin do in the believer? John Owen uh, prods this quite a bit in the mortification of sin, famous work of his, where he says, sin, yeah, doesn't unsave you, right? You're not the one who saved yourself, so you can't unsave yourself. It's God doing everything. What sin does is it harms your communion with God. If salvation is fundamentally you being brought back where you can say, Abba, Father, you can walk with God in the cool of the day by faith, right? He's near to the brokenhearted. He's, he knows you. You're abiding in his son. He's given you his spirit as a seal of your salvation, as Ephesians will tell us. If that's the reality of your new self, sinning, going back to the old way, distorts that communion, and so John Owen would just simply say, you're robbing yourself of the actual joy that Christ has bought for you. Stop doing that. Like Paul, stop being who you aren't. Christ has made you a new person. He's changed your nature. Okay, Paul will give a lot of uh, comments in, in Philippians 3, 1 Corinthians 4 and 3 about how we're being transformed or as the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's this idea of making war on the flesh still trying to cling closely. There will come a day when faith is turned to sight and all sin is gone forever and we can rest from this battle, but that comes when he comes. Okay, so we're in this now and not yet period. Okay, so lastly, what about Jesus and sin? Again, this will be kind of our whole semester. I just wanted to take some time to point out, or as we've spent a lot of time looking at just the depths of this depravity, who we are by our nature, knowing that we cannot save ourselves. We need, we need a savior. 
to change us. We need a savior to bring us a new nature. We need a savior to cause us to be born again. And luckily for you and me, as we'll look at next week, we have a God who is merciful and is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and sets out a plan of redemption and promises a savior in Genesis 3. And as Isaiah 53 tells us, he has borne our grief that infinite weight of depravity that is ours, or you want to make it more personal, that's yours, he takes on his back. He has carried our griefs and our sorrows. We esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took it on himself. The more deeply you see the wickedness in our hearts apart from Christ, the more wonderful he will be. Because as Paul tells us, as the scriptures tell us, as far as our sin goes, his grace goes all the more. It exceeds all the more. Ephesians 2, let me read it and then I'll tell a quick story about John Newton and close. Ephesians 2, I think, is one of the best summaries and one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel. We've quoted little bits of it. But notice there's, there's two stark halves to this passage. And the first half is everything we've been talking about today. And the second half is everything we'll talk about for the rest of this semester. And the beauty of the second half doesn't shine nearly as brightly unless you see the depths of this first half. So just look down Ephesians 2. It's in your notes. And every time I see you, just think of, think of yourself. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, desiring or carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. By this God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. John Newton, uh, who's known mostly, obviously, for Amazing Grace, as the author of Amazing Grace, is also a pastor. Uh, and before he was a pastor, he, was, he lived a very wild life, a wicked life. He captained slave ships, things like that. Uh, and when he was converted, uh, one of the reasons why he penned Amazing Grace is because he saw, perhaps today's lesson, so clearly Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And he's known, his pastoral ministry, his pastoral letters in particular, are known for just 
being such gracious balm of the gospel to all of his struggling uh, congregants, his struggling parishioners, because he knew so deeply, nothing out of myself have I brought to the table. It is only by a very gracious Savior that my eyes have been opened. And on his deathbed, he said to someone who was comforting him, he said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That is what this is meant to do to us. See the world rightly, yes. See the mission of the church rightly, absolutely. And see the beauty of your salvation in all of its shining colors. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do that, Lord, that we would not listen to the often tempting voice to just compare and look at others or to think, eh, it's a bit harsh or a bit too much, Lord, but rather we would see the depths of our sin not leading us to morbid introspection, but rather we would take one look at ourselves and take 10 looks at our Savior and see his beauty and his wonder and that the more our sin is revealed to us, the more the beauty of your gospel plan is revealed to us and it just leads us to worship. That's what it's meant to do. I pray that it would do that in our hearts to pray in your son's name. Amen.